Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. If it's screenwriting competitions you're after, well, ScreenCraft offers the best around. Their competitions are specific to genre and judged by Oscar-winning filmmakers and top literary reps. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of Script Apart. My name's Al Horner and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter breaks down their first draft of what became a beloved movie or series. This week, violent delights have violent ends. And listeners, we are now fast approaching the violent end of one of the most daring TV shows of the last decade. Yes, today on Script Apart, Westworld co-creator Lisa Joy reflects on the creation of that smash hit series, uncovers the secrets of its epic fourth season, and confirms that next season, should it go ahead, will indeed be the show's last. Lisa is an accomplished writer, director, and a guest that I've been hoping to feature on the show since its very inception two years ago. With Westworld, she and her husband Jonathan Nolan have delivered a dazzling dystopian vision of a future in which AI has run amok. Originally centered on a theme park recreation of the Wild West, the show has since expanded to depict a robot uprising that by season four is threatening to bring an end to the human race as we know it. The show's ambitious philosophizing hasn't been to everyone's tastes, but what's inarguable for me is that there are a few shows out there more packed with mystery and intrigue. The swings that Westworld takes week after week, season after season, in my opinion, just demand to be admired. As for Lisa, well, she was born in New Jersey and grew up balancing a love of poetry and storytelling with a sense of obligation to her immigrant background parents, who longed for her to follow a career path with plenty of job security. Which is how she became a lawyer before deciding to risk it all to pursue her love of writing. In this episode, we talk about how that background influenced some of her storytelling sensibilities and how everything changed for her while pregnant with her first child, when she wrote a brilliant spec script titled Reminiscence that announced to Hollywood that here was a writer capable 
of threading huge existential questions into captivating popcorn entertainment. We also delve into the shocking twists in Westworld season one that were originally going to happen in the show's pilot, as she and Jonathan debated how to pace this series and the many secrets contained within. If you're wondering what's in store in season five, we have you covered. Lisa speaks eloquently in this episode about the parallels between the ending of Westworld season four and the predicaments that we as a species are staring down in real life right now. It's a spoiler conversation if you hadn't already guessed, so if you're not yet up to date with the show, it might be an idea to hold off listening till you're all caught up. If you've slipped out of watching Westworld, by the way, now is absolutely the time to catch up. All the ideas and hints and clues seeded in those early seasons are well and truly coming into blossom right now. So yeah, be sure to watch whatever you've missed right up to last night's spectacular season four finale. Then tune in as Lisa and I venture deep into Westworld and all the themes the show so smartly interrogates. Thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters for helping make this episode possible. If you like what we do and want to help the show continue to grow, you can join that community by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you'll get access to ad-free episodes and all sorts of exclusive bonus content. One last thing to flag before we jump in, I'm currently on the road in Los Angeles with some work projects. I don't have my regular mic set up with me, so if I sound slightly different in this episode, that's the reason why. Hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction for you. We're working really hard in the meantime to get the audio quality up to our regular standards. Thank you guys for bearing with us. Okay, that's enough out of me. Let's get straight to it with Lisa. Thank you all so much for listening. This is the wonderful Lisa Joy discussing the first draft secrets of Westworld. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey, Lisa, such a pleasure to have you with us on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. We're talking almost at the end of Westworld season four as it airs. It's, I think it's my favorite season of the show so far. Like The stakes feel so high and the swings the show is taking have never felt grander. Um, you know, being a fan of this show in kind of all its, uh, you know, existential mystery means six days after every episode of speculation and theorizing and journeying down pretty deep internet rabbit holes. Um, yeah, I wanted to start by asking Lisa what it's like for you on the other side of that as each episode airs. Like, do you do you allow yourself to plug into the conversations that the show is sparking amongst fans? Do you have to steer clear of that because you don't want conversations like that to influence your storytelling like what does the Sunday night and its aftermath look like for you and Jonathan as a new season like unfolds um I am terrified of peeking my head out of you know a laptop book or my general immediate surroundings you know I think so many writers (laughs) are introverts and I'm not sure that um just being inundated with people's thoughts is good for almost anybody. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, a lot of the rest world is a kind <laughs> yeah. of cautionary tale against certain types of technology and social media. And I'm not sure that our village was meant to encompass strangers that um, can yell unilaterally at any one individual. And, and I say that for literally everybody, not just, not just screenwriters. And so for the most part, look, if it's positive, of course I'm thrilled, but that's not good for me. Do you know what I mean? And if it's negative, I'm very sad, but it's also not good for me. Like, it, I don't think it's good for anybody to know uh, what too many people are thinking about you. Um, so I kind of stay away from it, you know? And and honestly, by the time 
the show airs, I've been living in that headspace for so long with the writers and my husband um, that being able to walk around and ignore uh, the existential angst that I've been steeped in for so long and, uh, you know, uh, play at the park with my kids is something of a relief. So I I tend to uh, zone it out as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, There is such a sense of culmination to this season. Like there's been a lot of patient world building over previous seasons that have led to this moment in which, yeah, the the breaks are now off and the implications for the human race within this story you're telling are just enormous. I, I know that you and Jonathan had the entire arc of the show mapped out from the very beginning. How fun is it as a showrunner to finally have arrived at this moment in your story, given how long you've been laying the building blocks for, for, for these plot lines in this particular moment? Uh, it's it's pretty exciting. I mean, just to the prospect of tying up a bunch of things that we have been kind of diligently setting up throughout the years and to see the characters and where their journeys might end. You know, we always planned for fourth season to be the penultimate season. So by the time the finale airs, we should hopefully understand, okay, we're jettisoning, we're jettisoning into this new world. Um, And, you know, but it's a business. And so I hope we have the chance to tell that story uh, and get a fifth season because it would be really wonderful to, uh, rounded out the way that we always imagined. And there's also, we, we've we worked with these incredible actors and it's a chance to work with a couple of them again, uh, which would be very, very exciting. But the fifth season would be the final, final season, presuming it goes ahead. Yes. Okay. That must be a crazy thing to confront because, well, I know that it must be at least a decade that you've had or thereabouts that you've been in this world. Like it was 2013 that the pilot was announced. So it must be strange for you at this moment to be contemplating a life without Westworld. It 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 is very strange. I mean, I I I feel kind of like I, I'm very happy that we're working on other projects right now that um, you know, are getting ready to air soon because I think without that, I might feel a little bit more bereft, you know, but every time I write or work on something, it's so immersive. It's like a little vacation away from everyday life and the business of entertainment, whether it gets picked up, whether it doesn't, whether um, it it lasts a long time or makes an impact, that's all, you know, part of the grief that one must withstand to, to work in this industry. But I think the reason I do it is any artistic endeavor is kind of like, you know, traveling through time and space in your head. It's like living in a parallel reality. And I find that sense of adventure and intellectual curiosity to be really all consuming and probably very good for my general mental health. You know, like other people like to do yoga. I don't like yoga. It actually really stresses me out to be that still for that long. (laughs) But if you put me in front of a book or a keyboard, uh, I'm pretty happy. Um, so I would say that it it would be uh, very sad to say goodbye to Westworld in part because I love my collaborators so much. But, you know, I'm always looking for ways to work with my actors and my crew again. And so far, we've been able to go on a lot of journeys uh, with familiar faces. So aside, the other stuff, the emotional stuff and loss that comes from rounding out a project 
on the one hand, I think finishing it up the way that we intended will be very satisfying. Um, but I better keep working immediately afterwards or else I'm going to have some kind of, you know, mental postpartum <laughs> breakdown, creatively speaking. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, you know, one of the things that's been uh, that's really added to my experience of following the show over the last four seasons has been like the parallels between what's explored in the show and real world developments and debates relating to AI. Like, yes, the hell it's in which we live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really yeah. great complimentary fair. True. I mean, around the, the time the season four premiere uh, aired, there was a Google engineer who was fired over claims that an unreleased AI system had gained sentience and was expressing a fear of death. You know, there, there have been lots of examples. Like when you set out to make Westworld, did you anticipate the show dovetailing with real life the way it has? Did you see what was on the horizon in that sense? When we set out to make Westworld, I think it just happened to involve a lot of issues um, and topics that I was then interested in, you know, and I think that I'm, of course, a product of my times, you know, so I feel the encroachment of, um, you know, social media, algorithmic learning, and, you know, reading, reading about that, and just being aware of the world, you know, those things tend to express themselves through, through everyone, right? Like through every, every, every act of creation, whether it's fashion or music or even our behavior and the ways in which we interact with people, we're all kind of swimming in the same soup, you know, and all those, those, uh, those factors just bleed into our DNA. So it, in a way we can't help but be stained by culture deeply, you know, and informed by culture deeply. And so I would say that I didn't consciously set out to be timely, you know, um, it just happened that way. And, and same with like the kind of social quality of it, you know, in terms of the female protagonist and um, talking about kind of, um, you know, women's emancipation and certain issues like that violence against women, you know, people would ask, oh, if it was um, galvanized by Me Too, but of course we'd written that before that, you know, and it was just an expression of stuff that I as a woman saw every day, you know, and was trying to process internally. And I think, you know, writing is a way of <laughs> having your internal processing disguised through metaphor and occasionally projected out to the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it it is interesting. Like, um, I don't want to completely label Westworld as a timely show because, well, deep down it's a story about what happens when an oppressed group of people decide to no longer accept subjugation. And that's something primal and that's something timeless. It just happens to have a technological framing here. But it is crazy how in the in the years since Westworld first aired, we've had elections derailed by bots and automated technology, data mining of consumers by big tech firms. That's uh, been a part of the show. It's become a major concern in our society. Yeah. In general, it feels like our ability to talk about the potential dangers of technology is increasingly like outpaced by the speed at which these technologies <laughs> are sold to us and that we're, we're embracing them. So yeah, you know, you, you've mentioned it as a cautionary tale, the longer the show goes on, do you feel more validated in the cautionary tale that you set out to tell? 
I don't know if validation is the is the key word for me only because I mean I'm sure there are some things that people don't understand and then after a moment you want to be like see you get it now don't you but uh <laughs> given I'm too scared to read anything about the show I can't I can't feel that that much I try to avoid it as much as humanly possible but I will say that a while ago there was you know some kind of congressional hearing or something about the um impact of social media on, you know, Americans. And it was really difficult because the people who make the laws and the guidelines and the regulations are so far removed from understanding technology in a deep, actionable way, right? I mean, as you said, technology is eclipsing in its speed of development, our ability to imagine uh, what technology can do. And, and, uh, you know, literally with, you know, neural networks within AIs, they can fathom things and we don't understand what's in the black box and how a computer has come to certain solutions. We just understand that that is what the logical outreach of the programming within its system um, led to. And, you know, all of these things are complex ideas that affect us on the day to day though we don't know it, but don't necessarily directly affect us in that we're all sitting there trying to solve the issue of AI and society, right? And I think that the interesting thing that fiction can do in a way that nonfiction sometimes can't quite penetrate, right, is it can raise in the guise of just pure entertainment, a accessible language for speaking about contemporary issues. You know, whether you like the show or not, um, it becomes part of that social cultural framework we have that allows um, the the language and the topics and the general um, structure of the issue at hand to become second nature and more democratic in, in its ability to be discussed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned these complex ideas, which... Uh, you know, it's it's something that sort of it sits across your entire body of work. Like reminiscence has the same big questions at the heart of it that Westworld does. You know, questions about human nature, questions about technology, and that intersection between the both of them. Were you always drawn to these kind of big existential questions as a storyteller, or was there something about like <laughs> about impending parenthood that sharpened your desire to write about the future and the world that our children might inherit from us? Like, I'm aware that you. This whole chapter of your career leading to Westworld kind of began with Reminiscence as a spec script. You wrote that, also became later a brilliant movie, I should add. You wrote that while in the second trimester of pregnancy. So yeah, yeah do you think do you think that changed you as a storyteller or was that always baked into your kind of preoccupations? I think the thing that I'd always heard as somebody, you know, I came to writing late. I graduated from law school, I think when I was like 30 was when I started writing um, professionally. And, and so, you know, I just sort of worked my way up. And from the very beginning, I had these like very epic scaled ideas for shows that I wanted to pursue. I think it's because, um, and my daughter shares this with me now, I was obsessed with mythology as a child. I read all the Greek myths, and then I moved on to Chinese myths and different, you know, myths from different cultures. Because like you said before, it, myths and allegory um, is 
it can feel very timely and very acute to what people are going through, but it is timeless. And, and the key is people tend to live in loops. There are primary colors of desire, um, confusion, grief, uh, violence that tend to repeat. And until we liberate ourselves from these basic cycles, those stories will always be relevant. And what's more, you know, though I grew up um, and was born in America, I'm not, you know, neither of my parents are from here. Um, and I was raised speaking as much Chinese as English and, and all this stuff. And so the classic story of like, you know, Americana or something originating in a very localized way, um, it wasn't as relatable to me as these larger mythologies where it didn't really matter if um, you weren't from, you know, the elite in New York City or something like that. Like there was some lesson to be extrapolated from it. And there is in all literature, right? But it, as a child, the idea that, you know, Athena was an amazing Greek goddess, you know, and, and you can imagine yourself as somebody that powerful and that wise. I think that's why superhero stories are really popular right now. There's an element of an ability to project ourselves onto those images and try to almost hypothesize about moral situations and um, just life situations, using that as a proxy for behavior, as guardrails for what is good and what is bad. You know, we use stories and internalize them in order to test out our own behavior and model our own future selves sometimes. And I thought that mythology was a great platform for doing that, a great mirror to self and society. I mean, it was weird because normally when you start off, you know, they really wanted me to write like a legal procedural, which makes a lot of sense um, uh, and uh, would have perhaps been, uh, you know, easier to uh, just, you know, get, get off the air, get onto the air or, or some kind of, uh, people kept pitching me writing romantic comedies and such. And when I first started out, it felt, and I was advised that it was unwise to do things uh, that vast in scope. Um, uh, and that it, it almost felt like if I could do something a little more playing to my own, um, exterior presentation, right? Oh, she's a female lawyer. You know, maybe she wants to write this kind of stuff or uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and it just didn't intellectually, it happened to not interest me, you know? Um, and so I think when the, the reason why my career took a course of its own was honestly, I guess it is because I got pregnant to answer your question, but not in the way you would think. It wasn't like I got pregnant and had these new ideas. It was that I got pregnant and could not get hired on a show. So I was unemployed. <laughs> um, that's basically what it was. You know, I, I had no choice but to sit at home uh, vomiting in a bucket uh, and wondering if my career was over, um, which is, is a, you know, a good thing to remember, right? I was pretty <laughs> sure that all was lost um, and that I wouldn't be able to work again and that taking that time off. And I'd had a pretty bad experience with um, an all-male staff being very, very difficult to work on. And this was before Me Too and all that stuff. So I was also quite 
demoralized and shaken, you know, by that. Um, and again, as, as part of this kind of expiation, you know, both Westworld and Reminiscence for me were about taking genres that were traditionally male, right? Science fiction, Westerns, noirs. Those are all genres that have a largely male gaze. The critique of them has a male gaze, the casting, the way it's shot. Um, and frankly, I hadn't been that drawn to those types of shows because I didn't feel like it spoke to me as readily. And so I thought, you know, in some ways, genre and any kind of tropes, those are, let's say, behaviors in um, in the language of film and fiction that are handed down over time. They are essentially vestiges of the former regime of power, right? As expressed in cultural and creative do's and don'ts. Um, and so in that way, what's always interested me is, well, if I were to take this framework and make it my own, if I were to take a um, Western and have it feature strongly a woman character, um, or if I were to take um, a noir and instead of having it be about a hero, to make it about the indictment of the male gaze, you know, and to kind of mix that harsh, hard-bitten language with something more poetic and feminine. You know, what does it look like to take the structures you're given and make them your own? And, you know, sometimes it's met uh, with fury. Like in initially when Westworld came out, I think people were very concerned that it was about, that it was about, you know, rape, you know, and none of that was on screen. There was an implied off-screen rape, but people literally imagined that they'd seen something, you know, all the way through. And to me, that was part of the power of it. It was like, it so affected you and that you thought you saw it, but you didn't. And for me, I thought, well, it should affect you that powerfully, right? Because it's a real problem. And by bringing it up, I am trying to talk about a real problem in a way that is truthful to me and my experience of it. So it's been really interesting playing in a sandbox that it feels like there aren't a lot of other women playing in. Um, and, uh, and more and more they're they're coming to play. And that's fantastic because I think that a lot of innovation uh, can occur when you get kind of new voices into it. Am I right in thinking you'd been scratching at those ideas and that idea of um, using genre and approaching it from a different perspective, a female perspective for a while? Like there's um there's an interview I read in which you talked about sort of when the opportunity to play in the Westworld sandbox, when that came around, you, uh, you know, you realized that you could take so many of the ideas and things that you wanted to explore in a feature that you'd been trying to write for about six or seven years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Is it, what, can you, can you remember that feature idea? Can you remember the law? Oh, I remember it very, very well because it took me seven years to try to write and then I didn't write it. And then a comedy version came out of it and it was fantastic. And now I will never write it because it's already been done. It was, it came out in, um, gosh, 
what was that movie? It was like an um, I think it was starring Ryan Reynolds, and it's a oh, free guy. Yeah, it was essentially wow. a drama tech sci-fi version of Free Guy. If you can imagine Free Guy and Gattaca having a baby, <laughs> that was what I was working on for seven years. I was like, this is going to be a timely, important story. And uh, <laughs> it was. And it was expressed and manifest as Free Guy, a film that I very, very much enjoyed. So when you did get that opportunity to... um sort of play with this this Michael Crichton uh, film being brought back as a series. Like, what were your first steps? Like, I understand that, like, you've always channeled a large part of yourself into the characters of Westworld and their fight for liberation. It's it's clear watching it and speaking with you that there's, there's a degree of autobiography and personal experience you were bringing to the table. How did that translate in terms of your first steps into kind of creating the characters? I, I can imagine that perhaps Dolores was your way into this world and way into this story. But yeah, talk me through it, Lisa. Yeah, I think for me, um, Dolores and Maeve were the characters I started with um, in a similar way. And, you know, it was at the same time when I was thinking on, on Reminiscence, I was thinking about May and... Uh, Watts. I was thinking about two other characters. So these these um, female protagonists, um, two of which ended up being played by Tandaway Newton, uh, were very much in my head at that time. And you know, I, I had been. I had just come off of a staff, like I said, that was all male. And one of the things that really struck me was how how heavy the weight of the male gaze was, like every day. You know, and I was in a room where they would say with impunity, almost anything they wanted, right? So I got a real, a really good look at a subset of masculine id, you know, because there were no repercussions and so no reason to not uh, not just express every thought that came into their head about um, women. And so it made me realize how very overlooked, um, uh, to put it mildly, we could be. And it also made me really confront the ways in which as a woman, you can look at it even in in wardrobe, right? There are so many different ways to curate the face that you put on to greet the world. And I think women have to think about that more, traditionally have had to think about that more because men seem to be allowed to be so many things, you know? It's just the sort of resting state of a man and they are allowed to contain multitudes. But there tends to be a way in which society's gaze is quite reductive when it comes to women. You know, you become a trope. And like I said, trope is basically just the conceits of the patriarchy handed down over time in my mind. So, uh, you know, so it's like, okay, are you the good girl, like wringing your hands and waiting for your lover to come home? Uh, You know, you're smart and um, spunky. You've got a little spunk, but you're not, you're not going to step out of line. You're not going to break the rules because you're that good girl. And that's, you know, somebody like Dolores, you know, or are you a bad, you know, sexy, sexual um, person with power who has no soft side? You know what I mean? And that's supposed to be the madam, right? And of course, then there's Maeve who as a child and has deeply emotional, right? And I wanted to be able to take the idea of these stereotypes of character and turn them on their head. And that's something that reminiscence deals with specifically, right? The whole thing is like so many noirs, it's like, oh, figure out where this girl went and then you've solved the crime. And 
for me, it was, it wasn't like figure out where she went and you saw the crime. It was learn to see her fully, right? Like the entire investigation is hampered by the lead's myopia, right? Because first she's a delightful girl who can do no wrong in his mind. And then he just, he decides when evidence of a past more complicated than that, oh, she must be some kind of manipulative bitch, right? And the truth is, she's both those things and he's both those things too, right? He's they're 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 pluralistic um souls, you know, who contain multitudes. And the same with, you know, Watts. And so I guess in some ways I'm just trying to give the same space for character and personhood to the female characters as I was for the male characters. Um, and in doing that, you are kind of swimming against the tide of genre itself and the roles that genre and that the gaze of society overall tends to impose um, on characters. Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals. It's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more, or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything, and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I'm curious though, like, I guess it goes without saying that there must have been so much research into robotics and AI and the kind of direction that we're moving in as a species with those breakthroughs. But but did you research uh, theme parks or think about the nature of theme parks much at all as you were kind of in these early development settings? Because, you know, I'm fascinated by Disneyland and the way that like, with each of those lands within Disneyland, you know, they're harnessing nostalgia, they're offering fantasies of eras in, in American history that kind of never were, you know, yeah. and it was obviously a fascination for Crichton too, because, you know, two decades after he did Westworld, he essentially rewrote Westworld into Jurassic Park. So, um, yeah, what's what's your kind of take on theme parks, Lisa? What do they represent to you and how did you work that into the show? Uh, well, we spent a lot of time thinking about theme parks and, um, you know, I was surprised to learn about all the secret places in Disney Disney World. And I have not been into the secret. There's like a secret bar. There's secret tunnels underneath it. There's all sorts of secret things um, that keep these places running, you know, and a certain um, cult of personality handed down from 
you know, Walt Disney himself. There are real believers that work at Disney. And 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 that idea of that cult of personality went a little bit into the idea of Ford, you know, and his design of this place. The other thing that we looked at a lot was, um, you remember Sleep No More? That was coming out then, these kind of interactive um, experiences. Uh, and so we went there and looked at that and 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 were inspired by that, by the idea of being able to maneuver within a space that was set up for your entertainment that had a sort of narrative flow embedded within it, but you just had to find it. And, you know, video games are like that too, right? And so, uh, so yes, we researched theme parks, video games, quote unquote, research video games. It was just an excuse for Jonah to play video games all day. <laughs> Um, and tech. <laughs> and yeah, like, tell me what, what else you can remember from that kind of blue sky thinking portion of planning out the show. Like, are there any ideas that you can remember entertaining before deciding against? Were there, were there vastly different alternative plots and characters that were in the mix before you settled on the story that you did? And um, perhaps there were even different sort of parks that you thought you might go to. What, what was kind of in the mix early on that you ended up jettisoning? Gosh, I had, I was very pregnant and then had my baby when we were breaking the first season. And I remember very clearly, you know, we had a whiteboard, which is typically where in a room you're, you're breaking a story, you know, and you divide it into acts and you write on this one board. So we start breaking um, the episode on this board in my house because uh, we were, we didn't have a team yet. It was just Joan and I. And very quickly in order to figure out what happened in the pilot, because the theme park itself uh, has rules, right? It has it has a kind of loops that have to keep going, like a watch uh, constantly in perpetual motion behind the scenes that then our characters have to knit into. So that's when we started to plot out what that would be, you know, like what would Hector or Rodrigo's character be doing? Like he's the one who gets to venture more into the Badlands and how would that draw them out? And how would that cycle repeat and make sure that we weren't breaking the uh, internal rules of the show? So that brought up this whole, you know, uh, to do. And then we were also thinking about the park itself and the business of running a park, you know, and the corporate intrigues that might happen there. And what business units do you have there? You know, so that's where Lee Sizemore came from and uh, Bernard and even the kind of business end of things, which I used to be in business. So we we sat there literally writing org charts for Delos Inc., just uh, as though we were McKinsey analysts. Um, and then, you know, came the character breakdowns and, and those were more paper. So essentially we were in this large room. We quickly moved off the whiteboard and started paint, uh, sticking these giant posters on the wall. And then when we ran out of posters for the wall, we put post-its on top of the posters. And I really wish, I know somewhere I have a photo of this room because it was madness. In the end, every single window was covered. And it was one of those rooms that like the windows are floor to ceiling. There was no more natural light. It was a dark, crazy cave filled with papers, post-it notes, arrows. And um, it, it was quite a relief when we got to take some of those down after having uh, written the first season. But I would say that in terms of story, we packed more into the pilot initially than we could possibly fit. Like we literally had some of the things that we didn't get to until the um, the end of season one were in the finale. Um, and because I think we were just so excited to get to those turns. And then we had to kind of pace it out and be like, no, 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 no. 
you know, we have to spend some more time with these characters and enjoy those um, twists in terms of um, fortune before, say, getting to uh, Ford's death, um, which which happened a lot earlier initially. Um, and then the other thing, you know, there were certain characters that fell by the wayside. I remember, <laughs> there was, you know, they have these vaudeville shows in the Old West, you know, where they wander around and, and perform towns. And I wanted to have a couple very much in love with like a dog, like a dog that helped do tricks, you know, and they would play, you know, um, you know, the, the evil bandit and the girl who brings him to justice or something like that. And, uh, and they were this like in love couple and, and, you know, when they cut, they would take off their silly costumes and just hang out and um, have a meal by the fire with their dog. And in the thing, uh, I remember we thought, okay, and then the girl, or the guy gets reprogrammed and really is a villain and the girl doesn't remember. And the only one who remembers is the little dog because they forgot to wipe the dog. <laughs> and so it was this sad tale where again and again and again, this woman shoots her lover and the dog is like, no, <laughs> the dog is constantly trying to stop this from happening. Um, so that didn't make it in, uh, but it made it pretty far. Uh, we got pretty enamored with this dog and the idea of these star-crossed lovers, which that came into play, right? The idea of star-crossed lovers for sure. But um, no, not the little dog, alas, did not make it. Season five, though. I mean, if you see a little dog, you know, the human chair was something I wanted a long time. And we just finally did with um, Tessa Thompson sitting in it, just little flourishes of uh, things. Sometimes you have to wait a long time before the correct opportunity arises. So who knows? Robot dog, season five. <laughs> this kind of goes without saying, but you know, this is a show not about human survival in an android park, but it's one that's sympathetic to and told from the perspective of the hosts. Like it's not a given that the show would have taken that that perspective and lent its sympathy in that way. When did you decide on that? Was that one of the earliest things? That was one of the earliest things, even when JJ had the rights to it, when we talked about it, I think he was like, well, yeah, you could do something from the robot's perspective. I think he was talking to Jonah. And it's funny because I had never watched the film Westworld and I was not particularly interested in Westerns. Um, but the idea that there is an outsider in this world who doesn't exactly know where she fits and is trying to play the role right and has all these forces and waves coming at her as she tries to adjust and survive. That seemed really relatable to me. The fact that that is actually the character of a robot um, maybe says something about me. I don't know. Uh, but I remember, you know, when I was working sometimes when I was in this, you know, um, all male room, just thinking this is very hard, but you learn so much about human nature when people consider you a thing. You know, because they'll show you anything. If they had had um, more respect for, say, me or women, they wouldn't have said those things, right? But I got to see a much more holistic side of certain people that otherwise they would keep hidden. And, you know, with every curse comes a blessing, you know? And so for me, there was something there that was really eye-opening. I think I tend to be far too idealistic or far too cynical. I swing, I swing between the two polarities. Um, and so from that very cynical lesson, I think I took something idealistic in its own way. You know, what if you had a girl who, yes, 
had to observe all this and be part of all this and didn't really control her fate as much. But what if she learned over time? And what if one day she did seize control of her own life? And during this period, as you were kind of constructing that first season, were you aware that like you were perhaps working through something or expressing something about like human greed, our proclivity to violence and, you know, how, how we invent new technologies and they're immediately oh, yeah, totally. used to indulge, yeah, our worst impulses. Were, were you yeah. kind of like aware of theme or, yeah, how, how, what was the balance between theme, the things you wanted to express and the instinctive sense of, I'm just concentrating on telling a great story here? I think theme, you know, you don't really think of it necessarily as theme, it was just the issues that I was so interested in, right? Like the nature of, you know, good and evil and the ability for technology to be corrupted. And does it contain um, the sins of its, you know, parents regardless? And, you know, thinking about sex and violence and religion, all of this is, I don't don't know, I I tend to think about stuff like that all the time. So um, it didn't seem like a theme as much as like, I don't know what else to write about. This is this kind of stuff that, um, uh, occupies my mind uh, for the most part. Does everybody think about themes like that? I don't know. I just assumed everybody thought about that stuff. Did everybody think about that stuff? I think so. You know, over the course of doing this show, sometimes writers say they completely block out theme and they just try and live in the character and, and write from their perspective and, and tell a story. And then it's almost in retrospect that they they can see, oh, wow, like that that's the theme I was working at. Something in my subconscious was dealing with with this particular matter. I'm always kind of curious at the at the divide. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I just I do tend to write from within a character, but I think that things that they deal with tend to be themes that are interesting me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's, it's part and parcel of the same same thing. I would say. I think Jonah might start more with theme, and I might start more with character. Um, on stage, but I'm not. Eh, it's always hard to tell. It's always hard to tell. At this point, it's hard for me to know which scenes he wrote and which scenes I wrote in the episodes um, uh, from the past because I think we kind of mind melded by the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, sh- I should say though, it's you know that depiction of man isn't cartoonish. Like you know, there's a lot of like pathos and depth and sensitivity and sadness in the human characters, like the man in black in particular, and the, the journey that we go on with that character in the show. There's obviously kind of a little more ground yet to go in terms of his story, or at least a version of that character. But what can you tell me about devising William orchestrating that unbelievable season one finale twist involving that character? And uh, yeah, what you kind of w- were aware you were exploring with with that character? the idea of William came from, you know, in the, in the film uh, it's, you know, the man in black is Yul Brenner, right? He's the monster uh, in the park, the robot who malfunctions. And, you know, we inverted it and it was like, well, the monster is the guest who comes to, you know, uh, uh, play, play in this park and, and release all his, you know, lascivious and uh, demented behavior. But it's never wholly, I hope it's never wholly moralistic, right? Because we're all people. Like, it's kind of the luck of the draw, what skin you're born in, you know, what gender, if gender even exists, God knows, right? Like, you know, morphology, the way we appear to the outside world is an inheritance, as are the structures that we've inherited. So I am literally sympathetic to 
all humans because being a human is very, very hard. And <laughs> we all have different burdens, you know, and I'm very sympathetic towards William. You know, he, on the one hand, he's a monster. On the other hand, he legit went to a theme park of robots and did whatever he wanted and tried to keep that kind of darkness outside of his persona in the real world. I can't really fault him for that. He wasn't necessarily reading the scripts of Westworld as a character and being like, oh shit, this girl has sentience. You know what I mean? Like, he <laughs> so you understand his own almost surprise to find that he's the villain. Like, I don't think he thinks he's the villain. You know, I think he honestly thinks that he started off trying to be the hero and found himself lulled by forces within him and twists of fate into this incredibly dark role. And in knowing where he started, I think he sees that we all have the potential to destroy and to hurt the things that we love. And no wonder why he's so fed up with humans and hosts. You know, he's just basically, their code is broken. And honestly, I sometimes feel that, you know, sometimes I'm Dolores, you know, and, and I choose to see the beauty in this world. I like to do that, especially where, is it, where it pertains to my kids and, you know, my friendships. But sometimes I read the news and I just think, oh my gosh, this cycle just continues and continues. And the kind of collective action for mutual betterment it would take to turn this world around and make it something exponentially better seems something that we as a human race are literally incapable of doing, you know, that kind of collective action. Um, you know, we all read about global warming and we're starting to feel um, the changes from global warming. It's real. And we have people begging for action. And then we have systems that don't allow for that action. The same thing with gun control. You know, there's, there's just a lot of humans are just divisive, full of infighting. And uh, at some points, they're incredibly productive. And the things that they make are beautiful, grand operas, spaceships, you know, um, acts of generosity. And sometimes we're incredibly ugly and tiny. Um, so, you know, I relate to Dolores, but I also relate to the man in black. And if I didn't, I don't think I'd be able to write him. When you talk about the there being some things in the early outline for season one that were going to be revealed a lot quicker, was was the man in black always going to be the, the sort of reveal that William is the man in black? Was that always going to be a season one finale thing? Or was that one of the things that you were going to cram in the pilot originally? That was a finale thing. That was always a finale thing. Originally, Ford died in, in the first episode. Wow. So how did that <laughs> yeah. shake out then? What how did that what did that look like? Oh, we thought, you know. This is the kind of mastermind and a spokesperson for so much. And, um, you know, I think we need to keep him around. And just because we have a feeling and are excited for all the places we want to take the series season after season, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be uh, beneficial for this season for us to just rush there. You know, we have to earn our time. And of course, when you're working with Anthony Hopkins, uh, you, you, you're just loathe. To kill him. We decided that already before casting him, but certainly it was good that we did because I think he added so much to the show. In terms of how you work out 
pacing those mysteries and setting up questions and then answering them. The mystery is such an important part of Westworld and it walks that tightrope so well. What's the secret to it, Lisa? Like, how do you kind of approach like littering in these these questions that you're going to pay off sometimes many seasons down the road? Cheers and prayers. <laughs> That's my process. <laughs> Cheers and prayer. Um, I have uh, no secret. Uh, I wish if somebody on this podcast has the secret, please refer them to me so I can learn and probably be more efficient. Um <laughs> I think in terms of structure and mystery, you know, the thing that's the hardest is always the bold idea, right? Like, what is the thing that we're trying to say that's new? Or what is the thing that we're trying to say that's, even if it's not new, it, it rings as true for us in a, in a new way. That's impossible to just sit down and think of, because trust me, I have tried. It's like, you know, trying to squeeze orange juice out of a rock that's painted. You know, you can't. You can't do it. You just have to sit there and hope to God some kind of inspiration strikes, which is why it's always like so funny. Like people talk about people, writers and things or, you know, any kind of creative as having some kind of power or, um, you know, special personal intelligence or gift, you know. And <laughs> it's funny because we are reliant upon some stray thought that I don't know what we do to earn, get, or replicate, you know, and, and those thoughts come again from the commons. They come from a community. No thought anybody thinks is solely their own, right? So the job of a writer, I think, is to listen as much as possible to the world around you and hope that um, if you're lucky enough to have some kind of inspiration strike, you recognize it for what it is and seize it, right? Like, so that's the stuff you can't control. And I, I wish we could because, you know, I have so much more to say. Um, but um, but the great thing is those ideas, they alight upon different people and they'll say it in their own way. And that's a beautiful thing too, because as a writer, I think you want to always also be a reader. You know, the part of this that's the most exciting part for me isn't like, oh, I've written something, check it out. It's this exchange of ideas um, with peers, with the world, this encouragement and delight that, oh, we're given this kind of brief stint on earth and we got to talk to each other about cool stuff and make some stuff, you know? And 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 that's, I don't know, it feels worthwhile and very fortunate to be able to do. Um, I feel like I have not answered your question at all though. Wait, so what is the question? So how do I, okay, so that's the difficult magical part that I can't claim and don't own. And then there's the math part, which is like, okay, you have your inspiration and now, how do you pace it out and make it land in the right way? And for me, that comes from technique that you hone by reading. Um, spending time in post in the editing room, I think is an extremely great teacher of the craft of writing because you can see all the things that you loved on the page die on the cutting room floor, you know? And it's a part of the medium, right? Like in a novel, perhaps they'd work. Um, but in TV and in, in features, and they're both different, different mediums, different things work. And so you have to be a part of the whole cycle. And, you know, editing is really the last part of writing in my mind when it comes to, um, uh, TV and film. So I think you learn a lot about pacing and about structure in editing. Um, for me, there's something almost musical about it, right? Like, when you're listening to listening to a song and it just 
becomes an earworm or there's that hook that you're going to build your way back to and you're anticipating going back to that moment. And there's something almost a priori within you that anticipates and grows excited for it. If you feel like that about the flow of your story, you're probably onto something. And it's just like, you know, I was doing a jigsaw puzzle with my daughter yesterday and, uh, you know, we're trying to jam all these pieces into these spaces only to realize later, oh, that's just not, that's not the right piece. It's close, but no cigar. So I feel like, you know, you're onto something when it clicks in easily, when it seems totally natural that it fits there. And again, this doesn't happen all the time, you know, like no matter how hard you try and how many hours you work, um, how much you want it, it doesn't always happen, you know, not. um, And so then you just try your best and hope you get it next time. (laughs) How much um, of that experience of kind of the jigsaw piece fitting and and falling into place and it just feeling like the natural moment to do this how much did that apply when it came to killing off Dolores at the end of season three you spoke so movingly about how much of yourself you put into that character was it difficult like making that decision and she was born a writer we're getting closer and closer (laughs) season five I will just play the role of Dolores no just kidding um yeah uh it was difficult uh killing her. It would have been more difficult if I uh, was not working with Evan anymore, who I adore and who I think is genius. Um, But I also think it was a natural part of her arc, right? Like she'd been the victim and then she'd been the kind of hero. And then she'd gone perhaps too far and become the villain, you know, like, and, and, and then, you know, was on this redemptive kind of middle path by the end that not everybody understood. And I think that's so much of life, right? Like you're not always the hero and uh, anyone who thinks they are is probably very dangerous, you know? Cause I feel like young William thought he was the hero all the time. You know, I think you have to acknowledge um, that we are bandied about on the waves of our lives and society and, and the things that influence us. And sometimes we are better than others. And that though you can't avoid airing or maybe hurting other people, you try to integrate it, you know, and learn from it and, you know, constantly adjusting the path that you walk to try to do better. And I feel that that is what Dolores did. Like, I feel like she was reacting to the things that happened to her and then to her own rage and so many things. And that by the end, I I truly believe that she owned her own life, you know, and she owned her choices. And when she did that to me, that was, she's fully liberated, you know? And so, you know, I think if anybody can feel that way upon death, it's probably good, you know, to think, Hey, yeah, I messed up quite a bit, but I feel free, you know, and I feel myself now and, and, uh, and I'm trying to leave the world a better place, you know? And I feel like that's what she did. And, uh, you know, we should all be so lucky. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's good to have her back uh, as as a writer now. So in the karmic wheel of fate, she is brought back on the lowest rock. Um, <laughs> yeah, and of course, at the beginning of your career, as you said earlier, you were always being encouraged to write rom-coms. And in a way, this season with Christina, there's been an element of that. I got to. I mean, writing a date, I'm not going to lie, writing her date with James Marsden I was like, shit, maybe I should have been writing rom-coms. This is wonderful. (laughs) All I'm writing is the things that 
it's basically like dating yourself, you know, because I'm a girl and then I write the thing and she's a writer. So I'm writing like a writer with it's kind of like, uh, you know, and then and then instead of listening to the, uh, you know, strange replies of somebody from, you know, Tinder or whatever happens now, you get to write the response coming from a mouth of someone who looks like James Marsden. You can date yourself in the best way ever. So I was producing the hell out of myself as a as a nerdy writer, but I don't think most blind dates go that way. So by the time this episode comes out, the the season finale will have aired. Season four will be over. Lisa, what can you tell me about how you decided to to end this season? What can you tell me about the the future of the show that this sets up? I think the future of the show is up to us as humans and as robots like there is a final chance and i do mean final to get it right to find a way to not self-destruct uh and break each other apart but we are out of chances this world is not meant for us any longer we don't get it no one gets it and there is a way sometimes where you know we are we are, if we don't fix the world, it's true. We don't get to, you know, live in the same world. We, you know, the the earth is going to be fine, you know, but humans may not be fine. <laughs> like the earth itself will survive. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, we will in any way that is uh, fantastic unless we kind of get our shit together. So, you know, Westworld's a cautionary tale. And uh, I'm hoping that. Uh, we get fifth season so we can see what the moral of the tale is. If not, I'll just have to tell you in secret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know obviously from reminiscence how kind of climate conscious you are and how important that is um, as a subject matter. The, the last chance saloon feel of where we end this season, it doesn't feel accidental. It feels very allegorical and kind of maybe even blunt in a way that this show hasn't been before. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, it's funny because, you know, it's, it's not even that I um, set out to talk about, you know, climate change and reminiscence, right? I just thought, okay, well, I'm doing futurism. Um, and, you know, in the past, I've seen the beautiful billboards and the robots and everything. And, and that's great. But I wanted to be understated in my futurism because I'm like, the future is actually pretty basic. We have a huge problem coming, you know, and, um, and what the future looks like will evolve, involve, you know, adaptations to that problem. And so literally we designed the world based upon, um, you know, our prognostications about uh, one of the biggest factors that will influence this world. And, and one of those factors is not just the danger of climate change, right? That's bad. Um, but, you know, okay, so it gets hotter. What happens after that? Well, food shortages happen. Famine happens you know, um, supply chain issues happen and then violence happens, you know? Um, and it's anytime there's a scarcity of resources, shit goes down and we are heading towards a humongous scarcity of resources. Like the border war that I talked about in reminiscence, the infighting amongst, um, uh, groups in Westworld, that's all because we aren't good at sharing or long-term collective planning. Sometimes we have all these imagined fiefdoms, um, geopolitical, cultural, racial, you know? And so there's all these like 
barriers that we think um, kind of define us and, and we and we stay within these tribes. And as soon as you see the world in terms of these, once again, tropes, right? Like I'm telling you, tropes, genre, we live in genre, you know, and we live in tropes. It's not just on the page and it's dangerous, you know? Um, so I, I really do feel that because we are in these classifications, because they've been handed down to us after generation after generation and are just embedded in our very most primal view of the world and ourselves, that is hard to deprogram. And because of that, it doesn't take a very smart person to see where this will lead. It will lead to violence um, and a disparity in um, wealth and protection that is going to be not good, you know? And by the way, with the pandemic and everything, we've also learned that even the wealthiest among us, you know, of course they can get access to medical care and things, but, but everybody was in lockdown or should have been in lockdown, right? Like there's at a certain point, if we destroy enough, um, we destroy everyone's uh, surroundings. That's very depressing, isn't it? I should say something. <laughs> But remember that scene with James Marsden? It was romantic. They flirted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will ask a happy question to, uh, or to, to, to close out this conversation in a second. But on that same theme, like, you know, after four seasons working on this show, being steeped in this subject matter, have you wavered on the degree to which Westworld feels like an inevitability? Perhaps not the specific events, obviously, but the general outcome with AI and our relationship with technology. Like, is a Pandora's box being opened right now that that can't be closed with with potential disaster becoming more and more, yeah, unavoidable? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pandora's box has been opened. You know, um, uh, we are we are just easily hackable. You know what I mean? Like, you can't. You can't put, I think somebody wrote it in the Times recently, but you can't give a, you know, girl going through puberty access to Instagram and allow her to put photos online or a boy, by the way, and not have it deeply affect their psyche, right? Like, like that's the most basic form of, of this, right? And then when you think about election tampering, the subtle ways in which we are influenced and manipulated by external stimuli, no one is immune to that. I mean, I'm certainly not, you know? Um, and I think we have to acknowledge those limitations in us, those very simple ways in which we as humans can be hacked. And only by acknowledging that and not being so proud and so hubristic and thinking we know better, but to accept the sort of animals within us that can feel insecure, that pander for affection, um, that try to get the likes, you know, you you have that that can be paranoid, that enjoy conspiracy theories, right? That can easily do a runaround around facts in um, exchange for settling for the best story. Like if we don't, all of us understand that we are all each of us susceptible to that, then how will we ever design a better course for AI? You know, and right now. Uh, with deep fakes coming out and tampering both, you know, implicit and uh, subliminal, but also very, you know, directly. I think we've shown how very susceptible we are. Um, and so, you know, I am for regulation. Uh, I think it's a good idea. Uh, and I think that there's a way to 
definitely uh, thread the needle between regulating social media and freedom of speech, which I also believe in. So, I mean, that's, look, I, I, I will say like, despite the heady topics that we talk about, and by the way, I just think it's the world we live in. Like, these are the issues in our world right now. I would say like, I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic because I think humans are really beautiful for the most part. You know, even in their flaws, they're beautiful. Like how strange that in an eternity of space and time, we are here as this conglomeration of cells right now, experiencing and looking at and pondering the things that we're pondering. Like how strange that we should be able to feel anything or observe anything. Like what a tremendous you know, intergalactic luxury. <laughs> and so, you know, um, it's kind of like while the music's playing, dance. <laughs> there we go. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, Lisa. And, um, you know, it's curious, we, we began this conversation looking at the potential end of Westworld and sort of uh, discussing what that would be like for you. You know, I, obviously you, you've been away and you've made Reminiscence, your, your first kind of feature film as director, like during during a lull in, in Westworld, you've had that experience. When you look to beyond season five, presuming it happens, when you look to the future, a life without Westworld, what do you kind of uh, prioritize in terms of the things you would love to, to kind of grapple with next? Like, did the experience of making Reminiscence want to make you want to tell more stories in a movie format? Do you think there'll be TV things? Like, and will they still continue to grapple with these big questions that have been at the heart of your work so far? It's hard because I I've had no look, and I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm pretending. I absolutely had career goals and ambitions as a writer, absolutely. But lately, um, and and this is quite lucky, right? I I have been able to really take the time to just um, support other voices as a producer, you know. So we're doing Fallout, which is really fun, and we're doing the Peripheral. And that's been great, like being able to champion other people and um, and work on bringing these other properties to life. And so I've really enjoyed that. And then in terms of the writing itself, right now I'm working on two projects and they're both quite different to what I've worked on before. Thematically, of course, I'm thinking about certain things in history or in culture right now. One of them is much more contemporary. Um, I think it's kind of like, you know, like as an actor, you know, I, I laughed at, at Evan because, uh, when she asked what she would be like this season, I was like, well, you get to take the corset off, you know, and, <laughs> you know, there's a part of me that was genre is like, Ooh, I get to take the corset off. You know, I get to write in a contemporary <laughs> style and be a little more, um, off the cuff now. And, and, and that is, this is a exercise that I'm, I'm excited for right now as a bit of a palate cleanser. Um, uh, and then I have some historical epic that I'm working on with some people, but it's too early to say, you know, um, but it's, it is the thing that's keeping me uh, busy intellectually and therefore uh, not, you know, freaking out or worrying. I just slip these little, these little worlds. And uh, look, I mean, I've had as many unpublished scripts as the next guy or gal, you know, so anytime you embark upon writing something, no matter who you are, there's no guarantee of success whatsoever, you know? And so 
again, you just better enjoy the process, you know, and I, I do, I think it's lovely that I get to spend my free time thinking these things and writing and have that be a vocation. Like I feel very lucky about it. That's so beautiful. And, you know, to, to kind of counterbalance some of the heavy, dark topics that we've discussed today, I'm going to end this conversation on a light note. Lisa, if you could pick a song that hasn't yet been given the Westworld instrumental music treatment so far oh in the series God. for season five, what do we got to get in there? Mm. I suppose the trouble is you've, you've, you've already done so many great, great songs, you know. Uh, I know. I went to Fiona Apple for a second. Um, I think that would be cool. She's pretty experimental in her latest album, so I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I can easily see a remake of Criminal being like very catchy and and yeah. Um, and let me think, what else? What have I been listening to lately? Uh, I love Frank Ocean. I love Frank Ocean. I want to yeah. work with Frank Ocean. Can we manifest this? He sounds very cool. Listen, um, I'm just going to throw it out there. Westworld dog spinoff with Frank Ocean. <laughs> just, just throwing that idea out there. I know, I know. Where's his number? I got to call his agents and be like, so I got a pitch. <laughs> I like the way you think, sir. How do you yeah. think about uh, sentient puppies? Um, <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lisa, this has been so much fun. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you for this amazing show and all your work that I've enjoyed over the years. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You too, my dear. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.